If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'll tell you my plan, and we'll see if it works. Uh, so what we'll do here is I'm going to take two different sections from chapter 1 in the middle there, and then at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, and we're going to take them together because I believe that they're talking about the same thing, but from different angles. And it's talking about the Word of God, and it's talking about the, the usefulness of the Word of God in the midst of suffering and chaos. And so we'll look at both of these together, and, and the idea is, is that they're complementing one another. Next week, Lord willing, we'll come back, we'll do that area in the middle that we'll skip over today, uh, but that'll be our plan. So, so the thought is, if you look at this part of the letter of 1 Peter, what Peter is doing is he's highlighting the role of Scripture and he's talking about the importance of the Bible and what the Bible has done for us in our becoming Christians and then how we can use it in the midst of life in a fallen world. So that's my idea, and we'll see if it holds, but let's uh, read the passage, then we'll pray, and we'll get to work. This is First Peter, starting in verse 10. It reads like this, concerning this salvation... The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of these things that have, been, that have now been told you by those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from, sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Now skip down to verse 22. It reads like this. Now that, you have been purif- now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Lord, as we've opened your word together, we're asking God that by your spirit, through this word, you would speak to us. We're praying, God, that you would help us as people who are seeking to follow after you. We pray that you would help us to understand our identity in Christ and help us to live in this fallen world with trials and suffering and persecution and all the hardships. Would you give us confidence of faith that you are good and you are for us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll look at this under two headings. We'll look at what the Bible says, and that's verses 10 to 12, and then we'll think about what the Bible does for us. So what the Bible says comes in verses 10 to 12. Now, if I were to ask you to tell me the essence of the Bible, if you read, I know it's 66 different books, it was written over thousands of years, all these different authors, all these different circumstances, all these different topics, but if you were to kind of Simplify it down to the one main message. How would you define the Bible? Now, we have all kinds of different ways that we do this uh, that are helpful. We're trying to just put handles on it so we can say, here's what the Bible is about. It's the B-I-B-L-E. It's basic instructions before leaving earth. 
You know, we teach that in Sunday school classes. Uh, that's kind of true, but that's not really the essence of the Bible. There are instructions in there for sure, and things that we need to learn for sure, and there is the prospect of being with God in heaven for forever. But I would say that's not the entirety of the message. That's not the, the way to really simplify it. Some people talk about it being a love letter, that the Bible is essentially a love letter between God and his creation. Again, I think that's helpful and it's getting closer to the reality, but I don't think that that really takes into account the, the, the wholeness of what the Bible has to say. You might say, well, it's an ethical document. It teaches us how to live and it teaches us how to navigate life as God's creation, the sorts of things that we're supposed to be doing. But let, let's try this out, and I'm going to say what I think the Bible is ultimately about, and you'll, you'll scratch your said, head and say, are you, you sure, dude? Uh, but I think that the Bible, at its essence, is an announcement. It's, it's an announcement. It is news about what God has done. I think at the very center of the message of the Bible is the message of the gospel, and the gospel in the non-technical sense is good news about what God has done. It's something that needs to be declared. It's a reality that needs to be announced. In fact, that's why preaching is heralding. It's like a, it's like a herald who goes into a city and says, hear ye, hear ye, everyone listen up. I got some news for you. And there's a declaration of what God has done. And, and the, the, the gospel functions in that way. And then we're supposed to hear it and receive that and go, okay, if that's true, if if what God has done, if the king has performed that, if he's brought about victory and we're awaiting the consummation of that victory, that changes everything. And so I stand up here as a preacher, and one of the words for preaching is heralding, and I'm saying, listen up, guys, this is incredible. God has done something. Now, you, you might not believe me because you're like, I, I don't know if this messenger is trustworthy, or you might not believe the message because it's too hard to believe, but but I would argue that the essence of the Bible is an announcement about what God has done. It is good news. Look at verse 12. The prophets spoke of things that have now been told you by those who've preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So what the prophets in the Old Testament were doing was they were foretelling, they were speaking the realities of the promises of what God was going to do in the news of sending Jesus Christ sin. And so that is the heart of the Bible. I would put it like this. There is the very center of the message of the Bible is the gospel. And that is an announcement. Now, if that's true, certainly it means that we need to listen to the news and then we need to respond to it. There, there are things that we should do in light of that message. There, there are things that we should change about ourselves in light of that message. But at the very core of the Bible is that announcement of what God has done in the sending of his son. And this good news is news about salvation. Look at verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets spoke. They were speaking about the saving work of God, that he was going to bring about this incredible salvation on behalf of his creation. It's good news about salvation. It's good news that happens through Christ. The spirit of Christ in them was causing them to foretell the events and they were predicting the sufferings and the glory of the Messiah. So the good news of the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. It's also a message of grace. Look at verse 10. It says, the prophet spoke of the grace that was to come to you. It's a message of grace. It's not, 
The Bible is not saying, here's all the things that you need to do. You need to be this sort of good boy or this sort of good girl. And if you do that, then God will relate to you. No, it's an announcement of God's saving work. And it's a gracious announcement because the recipients are undeserving. It's a message of grace. God says, you can have this freely. You can receive this from me, but you receive it by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a message that has relevance for today. Sometimes we get hung up on the fact that the Bible is an old book and it's written in all these different places that are remote and foreign to us. And many, many years ago, we begin to think, okay, so much of this does not relate to me. They live in a different culture, in a different world, in a different time. Is this really a book for me? But the Bible is a message that has contemporary relevance. The prophets spoke of the grace that was to come to you. Peter's writing to a group and he's saying, those guys that prophesied hundreds of years previous, they were speaking about the grace that's for you. They were speaking about something that's going to happen in the future, but it's for you. And then he explains that even more in verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In other words, Peter can look at the message of the gospel and he can, he can say, what the Bible has been communicating all along, it's for us today. It's for us today. Park City Church is for us today to think through. God is speaking through his word for me and for you. It has contemporary relevance. It's also incredibly beautiful. Look at verse 12 says, even angels long to look into these things. Even angels are desiring of looking at the message of the good news of the gospel. I was kind of just wrapping my head around this this week, and I was like, you know what? Okay, what does the Bible tell us about angels? I mean, it's not really a book about angels, so we don't get all the information, but, but we get some stuff, and so we know, well, they're pretty glorious, that if we were to see one today, if one came to church today, they might freak us out, because we would be like, what is going on here? But they fly around in the presence of God and they, some of them will cover themselves, they'll shield themselves from the glory of God and they, they're in his presence and they're just crying back one to another, holy, holy, holy is God. That's Isaiah chapter 6. Or Revelation gives us a picture of the host of angels in the throne room with the Lamb of God, slain yet victorious, standing in the middle and all these people are just giving adoration and, and worship to him and the angels are there and they're all singing. So if that's their job, if they're in the presence of God in some fashion and they get to experience something of the glory of heaven, the throne, God himself, what do you think would impress them? What do you think they would kind of get excited about? Um, I've got two small kids, and, and if you have kids, you know this to be true. They change what they're into constantly. Like one week, okay, for instance, Halloween is coming up. Some of you have already bought costumes. Some of those costumes are no longer relevant, right? Harrison will be like, I'm a pirate this week. And he'll wear that pirate costume out and do all his different stuff. Next week, he'll want to be something else. We change what we like. We change what we're into. So my question is, what do you suppose angels get excited about? And what do you think can maintain their interest? So let's, I know this is weird. I was just wondering, like, do they ever like go off shift? Like they get done with their shift and they clock out? What do they do? This seems to suggest that angels are mesmerized by the gospel. So they, when, if they go home, if they clock out and they go and they sit in their celestial home and they're kind of on the sofa and they pull out their phones, the websites that they're going to, it's not like how to become more uh, luminescent, right? 
how to become a better angel. No, no, no. What they're looking at, what they daydream about, so to speak, it's the good news of the gospel. Angels long to look into these things, into the message of what the Bible communicates about God's saving work, the gracious message of faith in Christ for our salvation. Angels long to look at that. Here's why this is so embarrassing. Why don't we? Right? If that's true, if angels who have access to all of these different glories think about the Bible and the message of the good news of the gospel and they long to look into it, why is it that most of us treat the Bible as if it is irrelevant? Now, we might never say that, but by our actions, we communicate that. So many Christians that I interface with, we have all kinds of copies of Scripture. Most of them sit on a shelf somewhere and collect dust. But if the Bible really is the message of God's saving work through Christ, we ought to be riveted by it. We ought to be mesmerized by it. If angels long to look into this, then we should as well. So a couple things that I want us to consider. How can we adapt our lives to reflect that truth? How can we begin to reprioritize life so that we communicate, if this is the message of God's saving work for me, then this has incredible relevance for me today. This is very important to me. How can I become a person who, when I come to church, I expect the Bible to be opened. I have my own personal devotions. I'm doing all these different things to interface with God through his word. That's one of the things that I think would be a very relevant application for us today. A second thing that I want, you, want us to consider, though, is how can we learn to read the Bible in a way that actually elevate, in a way that's right? So what I've described here is that the, the prophets were saying something. There was a content to their message. How do we learn to read the Bible in that way where we find the gospel? Because you can be very committed to the Bible and miss the whole point. For instance, the Pharisees were a group of people in the first century that loved the Bible. They ordered their lives according to the scriptures. They would do personal devotions on the regular. They, they would uh, memorize scripture. They would teach scripture. They would do all these different things. But what did we find out about the Pharisees? They missed the point of the scriptures. They knew the Bible. They didn't know the actual central feature of the Bible, the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ. So how could we become a people who learn to love the scriptures and learn to read it with the ability to worship Christ? Now, here's another piece about the message of the Bible. This one surprised me this week. I don't know if I had ever thought through this before, but Ed Clowney in his little commentary on 1 Peter, he pointed this out, and I, I found it incredibly helpful. He said, here is the message that the prophets were communicating. Here's the message of Scripture. He puts it like this, sufferings now, comma, glories to follow. Sufferings now, glory to follow. If you want to understand the gospel, it takes that shape. Suffering now, glory to follow. Let me show it to you from our text in verse 11. The prophets were predicting, verse 11, the sufferings of the Messiah and the glory that would follow. The prophets were foretelling the events of what Jesus of Nazareth would do and how they, how they kind of summed it up was, here's what's going to happen, suffering first and then glory. And that is incredibly helpful because do you know what Peter's doing for his audience here? They're going through suffering. 
They're going through persecution. They're going through trials and hardship, and it's only going to ramp up from here. And he's saying, listen, if you understand this book and its message, it tells us something about how life works. Because the gospel itself takes this shape. Suffering first, glory to follow. Listen, when the uh, followers of the Lord, uh, Jesus of Nazareth was teaching them and leading them, and he told them repeatedly. I mean, if you read the Gospels, this is not a secret. This is something that he just kind of put out there, and he said, listen, we're going to Jerusalem, and when we get there, and he made it very plain, when we get there, I will be arrested, and I will be, I will be brought before a court, and I will be executed, and then on the third day, I will rise. And all the disciples were like, what's he talking about? I don't have a clue what he's talking about. He cannot mean that he's going there and he's actually going to get arrested and killed. That just doesn't make sense. He must be spiritualizing something here. So he kept saying it over and over again, and they just, they would not receive it. So then he goes to Jerusalem, he gets arrested, he gets executed, and on the third day he he raises from the dead. In Luke chapter 24, there are two followers of his that are walking on a dirt road, on the road to Emmaus. And they're walking along, and they're pretty upset, and they're, they're you know, kicking the rocks, and they're like, I can't believe this happened. And, the, and Jesus comes up beside them. The resurrected Lord comes up beside them, but his identity is hidden from them. They don't, they don't know who it is. So he comes up beside them, and he's like, hey, guys, what's, what's going on here? And they basically say to him, do you live under a rock? Like, have you not heard what's going on around here lately? We were following this dude named Jesus of Nazareth, and then they arrested him. We thought he was the consolation of Israel. We thought he was the Messiah. We were, we were banking our lives on him. And then he got arrested, and then he got crucified. That's why we're upset. That's why we're having a, a rough day. And he begins to speak, and he says, you dummies. Like, this is the marginal reading. Um, he's like, you dummies. He says, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He basically says, dummies, haven't you read the Bible before? He says, verse 26, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He gives a master class on how to read the Bible. And he says, look, this whole thing Jesus is saying concerns me. This whole thing is about me. All the prophets communicate something about me. And he says, don't you understand what they said? The the Messiah would have to suffer all these things first and then enter glory. Suffering first, glory to follow. That's the paradigm of the Bible. It's telling us that what, what we need to understand is that life in a fallen world will often involve trials, persecution, hardship, and suffering but glories are coming. Glories are coming. Now, if you understand that, it changes your life. You begin to say, like the Apostle Paul, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. What we're going through right now, as hard as it is, we're not trying to pretend it's easy. As hard as it is, it is not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Suffering in this moment, but glory is coming. Now, that is very, very important for us. When we begin to learn to to view the world through that grid of, of the paradigm of the gospel, suffering may come our way, but glory is also coming. 
That will change how you handle life in the fallen world. Clowney puts it like this. The pattern of sufferings and glory has profound meaning for the church. Our suffering is not a sign that Christ has betrayed us or that he's, that he's no longer Lord. Rather, it's a sign of our fellowship with the risen Lord who first suffered for us. Suffering first, glory to follow. Life right now might not be going the way that you want it to. Things might be devastating right now. And the truth is, I would love to tell you that it's all going to get better immediately, but that's not, it's not exactly how it works. But glory is coming. I've railed on contemporary Christianity and will continue to throughout this series because I think it's so unhelpful. One of the most popular messages in contemporary Christianity is glory now. If you follow the Lord, everything tends to work out. And the messaging is very popular, and why wouldn't it be, right? If you surrender to the Lord, he'll make everything better. Sign me up. Show me where I can sign on that line. If, if I follow the Lord and, and the idea is he's just going to make my marriage great and all of my financial stuff great and everything's just going to work out in my favor and I'm going to have comfort and prosperity and all of that, why wouldn't you sign up for that? The problem is that is not the message of the Bible. The honest message of the scripture is trials will come. We are living in a fallen world that is hostile. Christianity is likely to become less and less tolerated in our society. Are we ready for that? We need to understand that sufferings may come, but glory will be on its heels. That's what the Bible says. Secondly, what the Bible does, verses 22 and following. What the Bible does here is it talks about itself, it talks about suffering, and it talks about how Christians should live according to the Bible in light of those sufferings. So, what it's able to do then, uh, here in our text, it, it actually tells us that it makes us Christians, and it gives two different ways of describing that. It purifies us, and, and it also makes us born again, and those are closely related. But it tells us the Bible does something to us. By its power, it does something to us. And then it tells us that the Bible is the instrument that we need if we've been changed by the good news of the gospel we need this book to continue to inform us and nourish us and help us to grow up in our faith. Let's look at it here. First off, we are purified or set apart by the word for the purposes of God. Verse 22, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Now, there's a call here for us to love each other, and we're going to get to that in a few moments It'll show up again toward the end of this section. The, what God wants us to do in the midst of life in a fallen world is he really does want us to love each other and love others. That's a non-negotiable. But here I'm underlining this part on the front end. You have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. In other words, he's talking to us and he's saying, if you're a Christian, you have been purified by hearing the truth and responding to it. If you're a Christian, then you have been set apart to this truth. The Lord teaches the same thing in John 17 when he's praying to the Father and he puts it like this, saying, Father, sanctify my followers, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. The Bible is the thing that can take us from a spot and say, okay, you're being purified, you're being set apart, you now belong to God. The Bible does that. 
So it purifies us. But it also creates in us new life. Look at verse 23. It tells us that we can be born again. For you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Through the living and enduring word of God. You've been born again. Here's how it is through the word. Verse 25 describes that. It says, this is the word that was preached to you. You've been born again through the word preached. That message of the gospel, that is the message that we respond to by faith. We obey that truth and we become believers. But from a different angle, it says when we hear that message and all of a sudden we're awakened to the things of God, we are born again. We are born again through the living and enduring word of God. Now, the word then has this life-giving reality. Think about it like this. How did God create the world? What does Genesis tell us about his creative act? God created by simply speaking. He said, let there be, and there was. He spoke something with his word, and then it just happened. It just came to be. That's how God creates. So how does he recreate? How does he bring new spiritual life to reality? Same fashion. He speaks. And when he speaks, things happen. Things come alive because of his voice communicated through his word to his people. When God speaks, it happens. So Romans puts it like this. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. People become born again when they hear the message of the gospel communicated to them, and they respond with faith. A few uh, weeks ago, I was on Twitter, and I was reading this um, tweet, and it was, it was uh, acknowledging that 65 years ago on that day, R.C. Sproul was converted, was born again. And it was a link to uh, his, it was like a documentary about his life and his own telling of how he became a Christian, and then how he faithfully served the church as a, as a pastor theologian, and um, the tweet was, was acknowledging the way in which R.C. Sproul became a Christian. And it made me laugh out loud. The way that R.C. Sproul became a Christian is by hearing Ecclesiastes 11.3. I don't know if you've ever read Ecclesiastes before. It's the most depressing book in the entire Bible. It's got this line that just shows up over and over again. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Uh, Walt Kaiser says, it was a book that was probably written on a Monday. Um, it's a depressing book. And the content of it, it's even hard to follow. But R.C. Sproul became a Christian when he heard this verse. Okay? I'm illustrating the power of the Word of God. R.C. Sproul heard this, Ecclesiastes 11.3, In the place where the tree falls, there it lies. How does that work? How do, you become, how do you hear that, and all of a sudden you're like, I believe in Jesus? <laughs> That's the power of the Word. The Word has that sort of authority. It has that sort of dynamic to it. It has that sort of power. And a lot of times, we don't trust it like we should. In fact, people like me, we often think, you know, i got to get this done. i got to convince people to make a decision in a moment. i got to do an altar call. i got to make it really plain. i got to get them to cross the line of faith. And we kind of think it's on me. It's on me as a preacher. I better get this done. The truth is the power is with God. And it is his word and its ability to create something that I could never create, new life. 
in a person's soul. We need this sort of belief that the Bible is able to do that. Well, why does this matter? One of the questions that I'm sure the audience is asking in Peter's day, and maybe we're asking the same thing, we might say it like this. What difference does that make, Tor? What, what difference does that make? So what if I'm born again? Look at my life. Some of us going through such awful seasons, we can look at it and we can go, what difference does that really make if God can't do anything to help me? Like, what if I'm born again, but I continue to suffer? And that's the point that Peter is making here. He's saying, listen, you've been born again by a living and enduring word from God. So it might look like your life is being crushed right now, but the promise holds true. What God is doing for you, you can entrust your life to him. It'll be okay. Not immediately, but it certainly will come true under the supervision of the Lord himself. So he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, and that's verses 24 and 25. We'll put it up on the screen. It says, For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You've been born again through the living and enduring word of God. Here's the kind of word that it is. It will never fail. Everything else will fall apart. Everything else might fail you, but the word of God is something that will come true for sure. Isaiah 40 is a part in the book of uh, the prophet Isaiah that's very surprising. The people of God are in exile. They're called foreigners and strangers in a different land. They're living in a place they don't want to be in. They're experiencing all kinds of catastrophe, and the letter is pretty bad news for the most part until you get here, and then it changes. It changes so drastically that some people are like, I think some other dude re you know, wrote this part of the book. I don't think this is the same guy. Isaiah 40 is now the beginning of God's promise to restore his people. And it starts like this. This is Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, declares the Lord. And then he describes, he quotes, uh, that's verse 9 that we just looked at that shows up in our verses 24 and 25. And then he says to Isaiah and all the prophets after him, go into my city and lift up your voices. Declare the good news of what I'm going to do. Make it known that God saves. So when Peter quotes this, you know what he's wanting his, his audience to feel? Your life might be falling apart, but if you've been born again, God's promise will come true. It did for them, it will for us. When God says it, he's not going to renege. He's not going to go back on his commitment to save his people. You might be going through hell on earth, but God is promising that one day glory will eclipse it all. And you can, you can bank on that, and you can depend on that. Well, finally then, we need to learn to utilize the Bible for our spiritual growth. We need to learn to take this book that tells us who we are. We are a new creation. We are born again through the living and enduring word of God that will come true. We might be going through suffering now, but glory is coming. If that's true, then we need to learn how to apply this to our hearts. And we need to learn how to obey by faith what God demands from us. And so look at verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, therefore, in light of what we've just said, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, 
envy and slander of every kind. Where did that come from? He's saying, okay, you're born again. Now he's saying, so stop misbehaving. Stop living as if you're not a new creation. Stop indulging the flesh and performing all these different sins that do damage to the community. Stop living as if you do not have the Spirit of Christ in you, helping you to walk faithfully in the here and now. One of the things that I would note is when suffering comes, often what happens is the sin nature in us spills out. I don't know if it's self-preservation or what it is, but when things start to get hard, one of our kind of reflexes in that moment is to respond in a way that reveals our sin nature with these sorts of things, hostility, deceit, hypocrisy, slander of every kind, malice. We start to look at other people and we start to treat them in a way that is evil and wicked. I think I can say this with confidence. In, in the last couple of years, with a pandemic and social unrest and just you know, political division and hostility everywhere that I was looking, it was, it, it was an insane season, was it not? We, we go through that together. And then I start to wonder, why is it that some people became more Christ-like through this? What was, what was the gig there? Like, what did they do differently? And why is it that some people who are very mature believers went in the other direction and they became full of malice and full of hate speech and full of saying things about others that are slanderous? Why is it that some people became more like the Lord who was pinned to the cross, looking at the soldiers who put him there, praying like this, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Some people became more that and some people became more I would just call it wicked, looking at other people who don't agree with them and slandering them and doing great harm. That's what Peter is saying here. If you are a new creation, if you've been born again by the living and enduring word of God, even if you're going through the worst of situations on this earth, live like a kingdom of the citizen of heaven. Live like a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Live like somebody who is a new creation. Live like Christ. Put off these old things and crave spiritual maturity. Look at verse 2. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Be like a little baby who's just sitting around going, when do I get to eat again? When do I get that milk? This is what I live for. I live for this. And it grows them up, and you know this to be true. Um, you know that the milk that an infant takes is so important for their, for their nourishment and for their health. And Christians need to be a people who say, look, the Bible is the place that gives me spiritual nourishment. And if I'm going to survive life in this fallen world, then I'm going to continually go back to this book because I want this pure, unadulterated milk of the Word of God that's going to help me to grow in faithfulness to Him. I'm going to continue to go back and go, what does it look like for me to be faithful in this season? And I'm going to put aside voices that might be contrary to what God has said in His Scripture. Crave that pure spiritual milk so that you may grow up in it in your salvation. Verse 3, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Keep going back to this thing. Now that you are a new creation, keep returning to the word of God. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. He's quoting Psalm 34 here. You guys remember David? He was the, the king, but before he was the king, he was an officer in Solomon's army and then Solomon started to become envious of him and hated him and wanted to kill him. David spent a huge section of his life on the run, fearing for his life. 
And he, he was in, put in all these different situations where it felt like everything's going to fall apart. Everyone's going to die under his leadership. But he wrote an awful lot of psalms. And Psalm 34 is one where he is hiding, for, he's on the run, hiding for his life, and he writes like this, taste and see that the Lord is good. And he, he acknowledges in that moment, no matter what's going on circumstantially, God is faithful. Even if he's not getting the promotion that he wants and he's not being cared for in a way that even honors his, his own dignity, he acknowledges God is good. Christians, the Lord is incredibly good. If you have tasted and seen his goodness, continue to go to him through his word to receive all that you would need for life in a fallen world. So the word of God gives us the message of salvation, the good news of the gospel, the gracious message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen for sinners. The Bible is the instrument that brings about the new life. It's the reason why we're born again. It's the word of God and our response to it. And the Bible continues to be the place where we can go to find out how could we live faithfully in a hostile world. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us? Lord, would you help us hear your voice through your word? I pray that you would give us wisdom to be able to read the the Bible in a way that reveals our Savior. And I pray, Lord, that that would inspire worship in us. Lord, I pray that we would take into account the incredible identity that we have as believers that we have been born again and we have tasted and seen that you are good and you are faithful. So Lord, no matter what's going on in the world around us, give us confidence of faith. Give us the assurance that sufferings might be in the present, but glories are coming. And help that to steady us no matter what. Lord, help us to crave that pure spiritual milk that will help us to grow up in our salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.